This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to yet another episode of Tao Unbound. I'm Ido Aroni, your host, and I'm so happy and pleased to have as our guest today, Professor Tamar Herzig. Thank you so much for being here. It's nice to be here. To our uh, listeners and our viewers, uh, I would say that uh, Professor Herzig is from the Department of History. Uh, she, uh, she's with the Tzvi Yavitz School of Historical Studies. She is the Conrad Adenauer Professor of Comparative European History at Tel Aviv University and currently serves as the Vice Dean for Research at the Faculty of Humanities, Vice Chairperson of the Historical Society of Israel, which is a very big deal, and a member of the Board of Directors of the Renaissance Society of America. You'll have to tell us about that. What, what is the Renaissance Society of America? We'd love to hear about that. And between 2014 and 2021, she served as director of Tel Aviv University's Maurice E. Curiel Institute of European Studies. Wow, what a big, what a big title you have. And uh, you wrote a very influential article titled... Um, Slavery and Inter-Ethnic Sexual Violence, a Multiple Perpetrator Rape in 17th Century Livorno. Now, this may sound to our viewers and listeners as something not relevant to what's happening today, but we will learn today from you that it is very relevant. Am I correct? Yes. So please tell us a little bit about your background. How you started, how you ended up doing this? As a historian. So I'm a historian of early modern Italy. Early modern is roughly from uh, 1400 to 1800. And uh, I just fell in love with the Italian peninsula and Italian history and culture. Um, but then somehow um, I became immersed in the uh, what I would... what you might call the dark side of the Renaissance, mainly, uh, namely the oppression and uh, persecution of marginalized groups, of um, the prosecution of, of heretics and religious dissidents, uh, the witch trials of the 16th and 17th centuries, and uh, more recently uh, also the oppression of Jews and the conversion of Jews. Uh, and then... After that, I uh, started, uh, I actually uh, stumbled across, uh, stumbled upon a case of um, Jewish slavery, and that turned my attention to the phenomenon of enslaving Jews uh, in Renaissance Italy, uh, and uh, which is has not been um, studied um, almost At all I mean there, there are hardly any studies that even mention the enslavement of Jews in Renaissance Italy uh, Livorno the city that you mentioned is uh, commonly uh, perceived as one of the places in which uh, Jews enjoyed relative freedom um, and uh, uh, exceptional privileges uh, in the 16th and 17th and, and 18th centuries um, And, uh, and what I found during my archival research, I'm a, uh, a social historian and I, I 
my work is based on archival findings. I just found this case of uh, that deals with um, enslaved Jewish women who were held at the slave prison of Livorno and uh, were subject to very cruel, uh, what we would call group rape, um, gang rape. And, uh, and it's a case that has been, as I was able to show in this article, uh, it was first publicized widely um, as part of the efforts to uh, extract money from the local Jewish community in Livorno uh, that, that was very rich. It was a community of uh, mostly Sephardic merchants um, of, of, of Spanish origins. Um, and then when... By the way, it's the community that later on produced uh, luminaries like Modigliani. It is, yeah. It, it was the, the community itself was very, uh, uh, very affluent and very uh, uh, enjoyed much prestige. Uh, the women who arrived there as slave women were uh, not local. They were Jewish women who were captured elsewhere. They were not Italian, and um, but they were Jewish, and so the local Jews tried to help them, tried to help redeem them. Uh, they were uh, regarded as captives. Indeed, they had been captured by uh, um, Tuscan forces, by the uh, corsairs of the Grand Duchy of Tuscany. Corsairs were pirates who were uh, working in service of the state of the uh, Grand Duchy of Tuscany, and. Um, and generally, I discovered that Jews were regularly captured either on the coasts of North Africa or in the eastern parts of the Mediterranean, on the Greek islands that were then under Ottoman rule, so they were enemy countries. Uh, and this was the period, the 16th and 17th centuries, or the period of a, a religious conflict between Christianity and Islam, so it was uh, legitimate to um, enslave anyone who was a subject of the Ottoman Empire, uh, as long as this person was not a Christian. So Jews, even though they were not Muslims, were uh, captured and enslaved. They could be ransomed by the local Jewish community, uh, but for Jews, the sums requested were usually very high. It was a way of extracting money from, uh, the, in the case of Livorno, a very wealthy community. And in this case, the leaders of the community did not come up with um, the requested sum soon enough, and so the uh, official in charge of the of Livarno's slave prison just basically ordered the raping of the uh, enslaved Jewish uh, Jewish women, which was an unprecedented thing. Uh, and then, when the Jews of Livarno, their leaders complained to the Grand Duke in Florence. Um, what we see is that um, the same person who had ordered and then publicized the very gruesome details of this horrific gang raping of Jewish women starts a campaign of silencing and, and denying the fact that it ever happened. So um, basically I was able to show in this article both why he did it um, and how he did it. And um, how First, you, you publicize something like that, a very brutal sexual crime against a particular, a peculiar group of women uh, as part of an ethno-religious conflict. And, and then you start a denial campaign. And I was able to show this uh, through um, 
uh, an analysis, a textual analysis of documents that I found at the archives of Livorno and Florence. Now, so, obviously, it's very similar to what we're seeing now with Hamas and the allegations uh, against mass rape during uh, the October 7 atrocities, but I don't want to jump now to that. Let me ask you a question about the way the article was received by your um, academic colleagues worldwide, and I'm beyond horrified, like many of us, um, at the response, at the silence, um, especially in the humanities, in, in universities in the Western world, post-October 7th, and the realization that evil that is done to Jews is considered now in academic circles as a lesser form of evil. Uh, did that perception, did you encounter that perception when this article came out talking about Jewish slavery? No, I have to say that when I talk about the past, I did not encounter this uh, kind of, um, of silence. Um, outside of Italy. I mean, the article was published in the American Historical Review, which is the leading English language uh, journal in historical studies, uh, read by historians of all fields and specializing in all uh, periods of historical, uh, of the of history. Um, and it did, uh, the article won two prizes and it was uh, uh, even um, reported in Newsweek. It, it was um, uh, aroused much interest. Um, in the English-speaking um, academic community and beyond, also in the general public, it was uh, there was an article in Haaretz in English and an article uh, about it in the Jerusalem Post. Um, what I was hoping, and I also published a sequel article to this one about the man who had orchestrated the rape, and this uh, uh, person is still until today considered one of the founding fathers of Livorno. Um, he's like the Yoel Moshe Salomon of, of Livorno. Livorno was like Petah Tikva in that it was a, a, an area of um, um, that, that had to be, it was a city that was actually uh, uh, established uh, as a new city. And, uh, and this person, Bernadette Bonromei, who ordered the rape, was one of the founding fathers of the newly established city. And he is still uh, uh, very much admired in Livorno until this very day. There is a street named after him. There are public reenactments of the elevation of Livorno to the status of a city in 1606, in which his figure is uh, being, uh, there's an actor that impersonates his uh, role um, as one of the leading figures in Livarno's history. There's a wine and dine with this person. And uh, I was hoping that this might change once his role in the slave trade uh, was exposed in my article, and, uh, and especially his involvement in ordering the uh, serial raping of a group of Jews. Um, this did not happen. Um, the article was published in March 2022. It was then uh, discussed in several newspaper articles in Italy, um, but um, nothing has changed as far as Livorno is yeah. concerned. I should say that, you know, talking about street naming, um, because of the prominence of Livorno as a Jewish community, I think there are several streets named in Israel after Livorno. One of them I know for sure is in Batyam. Mm. But let's talk about uh, the history of abusing women in the context of war. So you studied uh, Europe during Renaissance, 
but you have a lot of knowledge about that in general, even in modern history, certainly what happened on October 7th. So tell, tell us a little bit, what is it uh, that, that uh, makes it such a, an historical phenomenon? It happens time and again. So uh, there's a very influential book by Susan Brownmiller um, about rape um, that actually, as a weapon of war, that actually um, goes back to ancient history and argues that um, this was a way of expressing uh, military victory in in all kinds of conflicts between different groups from um, times immemorial. And we do know that uh, women's bodies are often associated and had been associated in traditional societies with uh, communal honor, with the honor of a specific tribe or community or a nation, and therefore the uh, violation of the sexual violation of women was a means of humiliating um, the uh, opponents, uh, the enemies in battle. There are early stories from the time. Uh, uh, there's a myth of the rape of the Sabine women um, in ancient Rome, in which the ancient Romans basically um, um, abducted women of a rival enemy tribe and took them to, to Rome and in this way they became kind of like the ruling um, um, victors of uh, became the Romans uh, what we associate with the Romans um, however uh, so, so this was and it had sexual violence had been traditionally regarded as kind of a uh, something that happens in war um, it was um, often perceived as something that is uh, almost inevitable, but this changed after uh, the Second World War. Uh, and as accounts of what uh, the Soviet army did um, uh, at the aftermath of the war, and the UN actually defined uh, the uh, sexual violence against women and rape as uh, a crime against humanity later on, uh, after what happened in Bosnia in the 1990s. Um, we also know uh, from more recent research by uh, social scientists that it is not inevitable, that it does not always happen as a kind of systematic or uh, preconceived intentional strategy of war. So we should distinguish between uh, opportunistic rapes, uh, you know, a specific soldier or a militant who just takes advantage of the war situation, of the fact that he's armed to um, obtain sexual gratification let, through let, rape. Let me ask These you. things are, I mean, have happened occasionally. But what, uh, what I noted, uh, what I noticed in the Livorno context and what we also saw on October 7th That's um, is... question, yeah. Is um, is something that is planned and that is part of a strategy aimed at inflicting psychological terror, at humiliating the uh, rival, uh, the the camp, or the the um, humiliating the enemies collectively, and uh, by abusing 
the bodies of women. So the women are the victims, but it uh, the aim is much broader. And uh, and this is something that is not inevitable. It doesn't always happen. Um, and uh, and we know, for instance, that in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it was not a regular uh, part of the conflict. I mean, many things happened on both sides, but sexual violence was not um, a, a normally part of the conflict. I mean, killing was, and uh, other things were, but not, um, uh, and, and this has been studied again by social historians as an exceptional case. There was even one uh, anthropologist who um, devoted uh, a study to the fact that Israeli soldiers do not rape Palestinian women, even though they are the, ar the armed part in this conflict. I should say, however, that I'm not implying that um, Israeli soldiers never inflicted any kind of sexual violence against Palestinian women. We know that these things happened. Uh, there was a, a, an infamous case in 49, Parashat uh, Re'im, of a group raping of a Bedouin um, of a Bedouin girl by soldiers. But in these cases, they were perceived as an uh, aberration that should be prosecuted and punished. Yeah. Now, so what you're telling us is basically that based on the information that we have so far about what happened on October 7th, is that this was not an opportunistic uh, uh, mass rape, but it was actually part of the plan. Would you say it's similar to what ISIS did to the Yazidi women? Similar, yes. So it's not. Uh, uh, there's a, a book by uh, uh, Christina Lamb who also wrote about the October 7th um, um, massacre um, about uh, what war does to women and she actually refers to uh, to what ISIS did to the Yazidi women. Uh, there are certainly similarities in that, that women are um, sexually abused as a way of humiliating and defeating also psychologically the other um, the, the, the enemies and this is something that has I mean, it's common in traditional societies in which women's presumed honor is um, um, tied to the communal collective honor of the group. Now, um, you mentioned in your article the efforts to silence the women in Livorno. Uh, but here, we're experiencing something very different than you, and you brought uh, graciously a pamphlet from uh, a rally in, at Stanford University, which our, our, our listeners cannot see, but our viewers can see. Um, and, and here, uh, we are bothered with a different kind of silence. We're bothered by the silence of organizations and institutions that are meant to protect women and are meant to prevent uh, gender-based violence, and yet they're silent about what happened to women by the way, not only Jewish women. Yes. There were many kinds of women that were abused and violated and raped on October 7th. How do you explain that silence? I have to say that I, I continue to be shocked by it uh, because, uh, to my mind, it goes against uh, 
the most important achievements of the feminist movement uh, in of the last decade. Uh, basically, the Me Too movement of having to believe the victims. And what we see here is a denial campaign despite the fact that the perpetrators, the rapists themselves, filmed themselves and photographed themselves and sent and posted online the evidence of their sexual crimes, of their mutilating of the bodies of, of their female victims, also men and children, we know that. So we know that, but there's a very active denial campaign uh, and it has, um, uh, so one strand is to deny that, uh, you know, there were no rapes. Um, there is no way to counter this uh, kind of uh, fake news thing because th these things were immediately on October 7th, there were already images that are not, uh, cannot really be mistaken for anything else. Um, but th there are efforts to, to deny it. Um, another strand is uh, focusing on what the so-called context you know so maybe you know there was sexual violence but um but you know this is all the result of israel's ongoing uh, treatment maltreatment of palestinians and should be seen within the context of um of the conflict of the ongoing conflict and is just one more um, example of this. So with the second kind of uh, arguments, I think uh, uh, it is important to remember that uh, as these very organizations that you mentioned uh, have been arguing for decades, and especially in the last uh, few years, nothing can justify rape. There is the context does not matter, just as it does not matter what a woman wore or if she walked alone at night or if she was drunk or if she was at a party or if she you know, flirted with the man. He should still not be allowed to do uh, to sexually assault a woman under uh, any circumstances. So this is the traditional feminist argument about sexual violence against women. And here, suddenly we see these very same organizations saying, no, but the context, you know, as if Israeli women and girls, also boys, um, deserve to be raped just because of the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And this is something that has to be uh, called out repeatedly, I think, just that no one who defines herself or, or himself as a feminist can say, you know, maybe there was sexual violence, but it's part of the conflict. Nothing justified justifies the abuse of uh, women's bodies. Yeah, and yet they do justify it. And I'd like to share with our listeners and our viewers a quote from the event, your quote from the event in, at Stanford, and I'll paraphrase, I don't want to do the whole thing, but you say, what is astonishing is the willingness of feminist activists and organizations to abandon what came to be regarded as the sacrosanct motto of the me too era i believe you they don't believe us our women only because they're associated with with israel either israeli citizens or foreign workers that happen to be there um, um and the question is what can we do um i i, I came from a month-long speaking tour in north america recently and i'm about to embark on another speaking tour in two weeks and I sensed, I experienced the frustration 
of people firsthand. What can be done? Well, I think it is very important to um, remind the audience. Uh, I don't know what uh, kind of uh, what specific audiences you will be addressing, but um, to remind them of the fact that, again, nothing can justify the rape of any woman in any circumstances, uh, because if we uh, allow rape in certain circumstances, this is a slippery slope. I mean, then someone can say, well, you know, I raped her, but I thought she wanted it. You know, anything can be said uh, once you start paying, once you say that the context does matter as far as rape is concerned. Uh, no, it does not. Some crimes against humanity and, and uh, rape of women during a conflict, an armed conflict, is a cr now defined by the UN as a crime against humanity. So this is something that should be mentioned. Uh, we should repeatedly bring up the identity of so many of the victims. The fact that uh, there were students, that there were uh, uh, young girls at a party, you know, people who were not themselves involved in any kind of um, violent action themselves. Um, and. I also think it's important to stress the fact that this is a watershed uh, in relations b between Israel and its neighbors because something like that has never happened before. I mean, there was violence, there were pogroms earlier on, there were terrorist attacks, um, and, uh, and of course Israel is inflicting violence on Gaza right now as we speak. Um, normally, it is somewhat more customary to focus on the dead bodies uh, that are not gendered, and these are the casualties that we see when, or that we think of when we think about the conflict. Um, and this is another way of silencing sexual violence. You don't count the raped uh, victims, the people whose lives had been shattered, uh, whereas we know from studies that sexual violence, uh, rape during war, has been defined as slow murder because the victims who were not immediately murdered, as was the case, we know, um, was often the case on October 7th, those who were not murdered are indeed suffering kind of a slow murder as survivors. Um, also, anyone who witnessed this kind of horrible, uh, uh, horrific sexual violence, um, the people who testified about it later on, the rescue forces who saw the mutilated bodies uh, and the signs of sexual violence, the broken bones, um, um, they will be suffering and are already suffering from a secondary trauma. Um, and um, and this is something that should also be taken into consideration when we think about the casualties of a conflict. Now, let me ask you a question. There's a debate about the um, images of the atrocities, and I'm specifically referring to images that prove the, the point that some people, unfortunately and sadly, are trying to deny that there was a gender-based violence towards women on the Israeli side on October 7th. And um, do you think it's the right thing to do to share those images with the world, considering that some of them uh, are, you know, so those who survived will have to deal with that trauma? As you said, it's a slow death because they will have to carry this for the rest of their lives. And, and, um, and so you have to balance 
the privacy issues and the and the well-being of the survivors and the well-being of the families of the victims that did not survive and the need of the system to make the case we need to build the case it could be a legal case it could be a moral case it could be an ethical case can be a cultural case but we need to make the case how do you balance between the two I think it is very important to show the images not in the internal Israeli discussion I think we're all traumatized enough we don't need to be exposed to additional um, images we know what happened but to non-israelis it is very important to show the images um, because this is not like other things that were seen especially as part of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, and as for um, um, privacy issues it's very important to remember that these images were posted um, on public on social networks uh, on October 7th already and it is also important that uh, not to silence the fact that it happened uh, it's not this the uh, victims shame it's not their fault they are not the ones who should be ashamed it's the perpetrators who should be ashamed who should be uh, held responsible for what they did and in order for this to be done we have to uh, um, to show these images and also as a way of telling the victims and the, the, the victims who survived um, that it's not their fault that there's nothing really to be ashamed of now let me ask you another question as a historian we're we know now that the Hamas terrorists on October 7th were induced by uh, drugs that among other things enhance uh, sexual drive. Uh, is, is there any precedent to that in history? I know that I read somewhere that the Nazis used drugs as well to enhance the physical performance of the soldiers. Um, is there something that we know from history? So I'm a historian of the earlier periods in which this was definitely not documented, so I'm not the person to... Uh, uh, to answer this kind of question, but we should bear in mind that uh, rape, especially rape uh, of this kind that is systematic and that is part of a, of a strategy as a weapon of war, is not a question of uh, sexual drive. Again, this is where we distinguish between opportunistic rape, which may be just one soldier having a sexual drive and wanting to gratify himself, um, taking um, advantage, uh, um, making use of the situation. But uh, what we have here is really a matter of violence, of inflicting violence. It was part violence. of a plan. It's part of a plan of inflicting violence as a way of... Uh, inflicting um, um, psychological terror and humiliating the other side. Um, and also, I mean, if we think of the way these things were done, um, mutilating uh, the vagina, the uh, breasts of Israeli girls and women um, as a way of, and, and then filming it as a way of um, kind of, uh, uh, of, of saying, you know, we are really harming the reproductive capacity of the enemy. I mean, this has a, a symbolic, very symbolic message. It's not about um, sexual drive. Yeah, and I, by the way, 
Uh, there is a, a or not only about I mean the sexual drive may be induced in order to perform these things, but when we talk about rape during uh, during war, also the mutilation, the things that we heard about are very much a part yeah, of it. Yeah. No, what I the, what I read was uh, that the purpose of the drugs was obviously to enhance the, yeah. the plan, uh, but. Um, uh, but you know those drugs were used in history for other things too. I just wanted to tell our, our viewers and our listeners that those who are interested in the subject matter that there's a very powerful opinion video made by, and I don't know, Professor Herzig, if you had a chance to see that, by a Jewish journalist from the United States by the name of Barry Weiss, who spent about 30 minutes describing the failure of feminist organizations and organizations that are out there to protect women uh, to address uh, appropriately what happened on October 7th. And, and I just wanted to thank you for spending this time with us and, and give you our gratitude for, you know, educating us and enriching us and, and, um, and pushing forward the message of our victims out there. Thank you so much. May I add just one more sure, thing? Sure, of course. Um, I think this issue... Uh, we should keep reminding whoever we're talking to about this also because we still have hostages including female hostages and we can only imagine what they're going through and this is what makes the silence of international organizations even more outrageous and i know that there are some uh, entities out there especially north america planning to sue these organizations for failing to yeah. uphold their own mission statements and their own standards. Yes. And I think that uh, this is an important work. Well, Professor Herzig, thank you so much for uh, being with us. I hope to be able to host you again in the near future, hopefully okay. with better news about the hostages and with better news about the response of international organizations. Thank you. And to our viewers and listeners back home, greetings from Tel Aviv until our next episode. Bye-bye. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. <laughs>